welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm one of your three co-hosts today, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 59th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we're excited to be recording in front of a live audience down at the Southeast Renewable Energy Summit, which took place down in Charlotte earlier in November. We're grateful to the team down at Infocast for having us out on site to talk more about what's been going on in the policy world here as of late. It's a ton of fun being out here at the conference as this is one of the first major gatherings back in person for folks across the clean energy sector here in the Carolinas. I, for one, have enjoyed running into many colleagues and friends who I haven't seen in person for almost two years now. On another exciting note, as I alluded to earlier, we're joined on today's episode by two additional co-hosts. These two are voices you've most likely heard at various events and conferences over the years and have generated their own followings in this space. So I'm excited to introduce both of them here in a little bit to kick off the conversations. But first, let's jump into some quick news. So some exciting news at the federal level. If you've been living under a rock, you may have missed the news that Congress recently passed a fairly sweeping $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, which includes everything from your traditional roads and bridges to funding specifically allocated for clean energy. Without getting too far into the details, the bill includes funding for EV infrastructure build-out, additional support for the Weatherization Assistance Program, and other items like transmission and distribution planning, to name a few. We'll plan to cover how this money will directly impact North Carolina in an upcoming episode. Since we're talking about federal legislation, though, we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention Build Back Better. NCSEA recently issued a statement commending North Carolina's House delegation for passing this act, as there's a significant portion of the funding focused on clean energy investments as well, including the expansion and extension of the investment tax credit for clean energy. We'll include a link to our statement in today's show notes, and will continue to provide updates as the bill makes its way through the Senate. On the economic development front, things are heating up when it comes to EV production here in North Carolina. It's being widely reported that Toyota is considering a site on the outer edges of Greensboro as the new location for a potential battery manufacturing plant that could total $3.4 billion of investment in up to nearly 4,000 jobs. Speculation started running wild when the recently passed NC Budget Bill included a provision which lays out $135 million in economic development incentives to an unnamed manufacturer with criteria that met Toyota's earlier stated plans to expand their EV-related efforts here in the United States. While suspicions are yet to be confirmed, the potential for a manufacturing plant of this caliber would be huge for the state as we've lost a number of different automotive manufacturing opportunities over recent years to our neighboring states. More information on this developing story can be found via the article in the show notes. In other significant news, NCSEA, along with our partners at the Solar Energy Industries Association, Sunrun, and the Southern Environmental Law Center on behalf of Vote Solar and the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, 
recently signed an agreement with Duke Energy supporting the implementation of a new net energy metering program in North Carolina. If approved by the North Carolina Utilities Commission, this agreement will offer Duke Energy's future net metering customers significant upfront savings when adopting solar, including a direct rebate, new solar pricing signals to reduce utility costs for all customers, and preserve electricity bill savings for current net metering customers. This agreement was recently filed at the North Carolina Utilities Commission and is still yet to be approved by commissioners. We'll continue to provide updates on this settlement as it proceeds over the coming weeks and months. Stay tuned for more. A press release is also included in today's show notes. And given the recent holidays, in the spirit of giving, especially given that this past week was Giving Tuesday, if you were so compelled and able to, NCSEA is in the midst of its annual giving campaign. Your support continues to enable the NCSEA team to advocate on behalf of strong clean energy policies and regulation in the state to continue to build out the clean energy economy of the future. To find out more about the campaign and contribute yourself, visit energync.org forward slash there, that's T-H-E-I-R dash tomorrow. And last up, some exciting personal news to share. For those that have been eagerly awaiting the most recent episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, I apologize for keeping you on your toes. I've actually been in the process of transitioning back into a full-time role with the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association as their Director of Marketing and Communications. So what does this mean? Well, I'm here to stay for sure as your host of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, but I'm sure I'll have the chance to work with many of you outside of this capacity as host. All right. Without further ado, let's jump into today's topic. We're diving in deep to talk more about HB 951. Yes, yes, I know, we've talked about this bill quite a bit, but on today's episode, we're talking a little bit more about some areas that have received little attention and topics that were left out of the bill entirely. We're taking a different approach to HB 951 to ensure we're considering communities of all backgrounds from across the state. So with that teaser, let's introduce our co-hosts. Clean energy. Clean energy. First, on today's episode is a new voice to the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast, and someone we hope that we'll be able to bring on as a more regular contributor, given her incredible experience and background in the clean energy space. Our first contributor today combines her background in economic development, community engagement and economic justice to share her perspective on the importance of how clean energy can be a driver to community wealth and build value for North Carolinians of all backgrounds. She joins with experience working as an economic development director, a regional director for Oxfam America, a regulatory affairs specialist within the utility scale solar industry, and as the founder of her own law firm and community wealth clean energy company. We are excited to welcome Ajulo Otho to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. All right, so Ajulo, you are joining us with a wealth of experience in the energy industry. So tell us a little bit more about the areas you're passionate about within clean energy. And I guess there's a little bit more of a background for our listeners. Back in 2017, 
you founded your own company focused on generating community wealth for small and minority landowners through solar and storage. So can you tell us a little bit more about inner wealth solutions, the work of your team, and the areas within clean energy that you're really focused on right now? Um, first of all, I'm so excited to be on Squeaky Clean with you today, Matt and Ivan. Um, so, yeah, Inner Wealth Solutions is um, one of many emerging companies thinking about how we do clean energy in a way that's responsive to the needs of low and moderate income people, rural communities, um, just trying to do things a little bit differently now that we've got this tremendous opportunity to support the transition towards clean energy. Um, I think it's also important to mention that not only am I um, working with Interwealth, but I'm also general counsel for Carolina Solar Services, and that's a really important part of my work too. Um, and there, I'm, I'm especially interested in the work that we do around ecosystem services and um, thinking about how to make um, the lifetime of a solar array uh, benefit landowners as well as the communities that surround it. So um, looking forward to talking more with you. And, and just, a, just a quick follow-up question to that. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the, the gaps within the market that Inner Wealth Solutions is helping to address? Right. Um, you know, I started the company because, one, um, I'm, I'm grateful to be in North Carolina and grateful to have a chance to start um, working in the solar industry in North Carolina because it's such a um, unique state that has um, nationally... Um, sort of exceeded everyone's expectations about how much solar could be built with the marketplace. And, um, but there's this tremendous gap in the um, intended beneficiaries of that solar energy. And I, I knew that there was an opportunity to start to at least ask questions about how we deploy solar energy in our state such that we can have greater impacts more widely shared impacts and benefits. And um, because of that market gap, uh, I thought it was a great opportunity to start InnerWealth. But there are um, policy and regulatory and other sort of constraints to moving, um, moving that forward. But I do think that it's an opportunity because solar does work in our state and we just need to make sure that it works for all of our state. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that, that you mentioned that. And um, we'll definitely hit on that more in our, in our conversation here when we're talking about making sure that solar works for everyone here in the state. Um, and, and to provide a little bit of a sneak peek for the listeners of today's episode, we're going to be focused on HB 951 and infrastructure. And, you know, I, I think, Azul, you'll really uh, provide, you know, that unique perspective in, in making sure that, some of these bills that are bringing, you know, additional investment in the state and uh, bringing kind of renewed attention to the clean energy uh, ecosystem um, are making sure that, that it's working for everyone throughout North Carolina. Uh, so excited to talk with you more here today about a number of different topics. Uh, all right. So uh, not only are we lucky enough to have a duo on today's episode, we also have another co-host with us, somebody uh, 
whose voice you've probably heard on previous Squeaky Clean Energy podcast episodes uh, and as you know, for a number of years has been a part of uh, the organization that's helping to bring this podcast to you here today, and that is Mr. Ivan Erlob. Uh, so Ivan, you also bring quite a wealth of experience in the energy industry, helping to grow NCSEA into the organization that it is today. Uh, in your varying capacities as executive director and now chief of strategy and innovation over the past 16 years or so. So you've seen and helped this industry grow over the years. So I'm, I'm curious, what's really demanding your attention now and what opportunities excite you most? Yeah, well, I'm. Uh, this is so exciting. So just first, I want to say working with you and Ajulo on squeaky clean going forward. We have a lot to talk about, and I think our listeners are going to love it, and we want to hear from them too. What do they want to hear about? Um, so I think we have a lot of ground to cover, and a lot happens in North Carolina every two weeks. Where am I focused right now with the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association? And it's really where I'm focused in my career right now too, which is what's, you know, what's the roadmap? What's the vision? What's the pathway ahead uh, for North Carolina for the clean energy economy, for our energy systems. Really, for the next 10, 15 years, we have a immense amount of opportunity uh, for everyone. And uh, we, we really need to figure out how to achieve these big goals and realize the, a lot of value and uh, benefit to make clean energy work for all of North Carolina. So I've been working with uh, NCSEA's team since I transitioned, since I asked to transition out of the role of executive director because I, I really want to realize my full potential and I, and I want to help everyone else do the same um, by working with them. And, uh, and so in this role as uh, chief strategy and innovation, uh, the last two quarters uh, I've been working with members and our team members uh, to clarify and align around uh, what should be the priorities, purpose, and outcomes of, of the mission-driven work of the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. Uh, I'm excited to say and, and share with everyone today that we've honed in on four programs, a power program, electric transportation, energy optimization, happy to unpack what that means, um, but optimization is a, is a key word over the years of experience, and markets. And we have some big outcomes that we're trying to achieve together uh, with everyone we work with in our membership, partnership, and everyone who's uh, making decisions out there and using and consuming electricity in North Carolina and energy more broadly. A few months ago, I volunteered to serve as director of the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion team at NCSEA. And so while, we, while I'm working with the team and we've integrated all of our program work now, uh, we are also looking across uh, all of our work. Uh, where is equity, diversity, and inclusion present in our work? Where do we want to go? Where do we need to go in North Carolina? And then how are we going to get there? And so that's certainly nothing we can answer just as uh, like a staff team of the nonprofit. It's something we can only answer with people. And, uh, and so we have, um, we have a lot of opportunity, um, again, just on this theme, uh, to make clean energy work for everyone. So while we're transforming the energy system and the energy economy, um, that, that's really the ultimate goal. Yeah. And Ivan, thanks for, for kind of providing some insight into where you're spending some time 
some of your time and where you're helping to focus our attention as an organization. I'll, I'll provide some background for listeners. You know, we, we had a chance to meet a little bit earlier today here at the conference at, over, over lunch, and I was, I was just thrilled by the conversation that was happening. Uh, I think there's so much energy between uh, the two of you that you're bringing to the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. We sat there and we're bouncing ideas off of one another, and it, you know, it just it felt like such a good match. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really excited about the perspectives that you all are going to bring uh, to, to the podcast moving forward. Um, and, you know, as you alluded to as well, Ivan, uh, there, there's not a shortage of topics to talk about. Um, and, you know, one thing that I've, I've struggled with as a content curator here on the podcast itself is just selecting from the, the plethora of, of areas within clean energy that we can, we can talk about on the pod. So without further ado, I wanted to go ahead and move us into our first topic on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. All right. So as we provided a little bit of a sneak preview earlier, we we're definitely going to talk about some of the policy topics at hand uh, that have consumed a lot of our attention over the past couple of weeks here in North Carolina, starting with a bill that passed not too long ago that's gained national attention uh, for some of the components and provisions as part of that. Uh, you know, many are, are really looking at this bill as kind of the next iteration of, uh, you know, clean energy policy in North Carolina, as, as many look back to 589 and look back to, you know, uh, the renewable energy portfolio standard that passed in 2007 and see this as kind of the, the next step in our clean energy transition here in North Carolina. I will, you know, will say there's still a lot of work to happen. Uh, and, you know, there's still a lot of pieces of this bill uh, that, you know, have, have, have got uh, to go through the process down at the Utilities Commission. Uh, I think if we work together as a clean energy community, there's a lot to gain from this bill. But with that background, I, I do want to, you know, open it up to Ivan to provide us a little bit more detail of what was included in HB 951, Energy Solutions for North Carolina. I know many of our listeners here have heard a little bit about this bill, uh, either from some of our previous episodes or some of NCSEA's Making Energy Work webinars that we've hosted recently. Um, but just a, a quick recap of the bill, uh, I wanted Ivan just to, to help level set with folks uh, what's included in it and what can we expect for next steps? So with the new law for North Carolina, it does, it does some things uh, for the state. It gives us, um, it gives us a roadmap. Uh, to, it sets some goals uh, to go all the way uh, to, a, to a clean power sector, at least for Duke Energy Carolinas and Duke Energy Progress. Uh, the very first provision in the bill, right off the top, if, if, you, if you go on the, legisla the legislature's website and look at the bill or, or you're a member of NCSEA and, you, and you're, you've been keeping up, you know this, uh, right off the top is a carbon plan. So by the end of 2022, uh, the North Carolina Utilities Commission has to create a carbon plan for Duke Energy Carolina's Duke Energy Progress that reduces uh, greenhouse gas emissions 70% by 2030 uh, from what they were in 2005. And then by 2050, it takes us to carbon neutrality. 
And uh, the phrase carbon neutrality is to be defined, and many things are to be defined. But what this is, and the language really speaks to it in, in this section one, is, um, is an encouragement and an opportunity for innovation. And, um, but the, uh, there, there are also a lot of uncertainty, uh, right? Because um, there is, um, everything is to be figured out about the carbon plan at the Utilities Commission over the next year. And uh, there are provisions in the carbon plan uh, that are big, um, that are a big shift uh, in the carbon plan section, like saying anything that is not solar or solar and storage uh, would be 100% owned um, by Duke Energy. That's uh, kind of a doubling down on the on the monopoly utility business model in North Carolina, and, and that that first section says for Duke Energy in North Carolina. Uh, anything outside of solar and solar storage combined uh, has to be owned by them. So the next the next provision uh, then starts to it, it establishes a 45% independent power producer and 55% Duke split on solar or solar and storage uh, that is uh, deployed under the clean under the carbon plan. The um, it continues the competitive procurement for renewable energy. Uh, process, but it's it's probably going to update that process. And first, the law says that the carbon plan needs to be done, and then the commission will come around and clarify uh, the CPRE. There's a lot of urgency around getting this done, and be really good for ratepayers um, to to have clarity um, by the by early fall or end of the summer on uh, what that what that procurement is and and who's getting the the next tranche of procurement. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be off to a slow start, and uh, 70% by 2030 is is an important goal, and um, we're talking about the least cost resources right now. Then, um, subcritical power gener- uh, subcritical coal power plants are uh, to be retired under this law, and it says that 50% have to be securitized. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I'm not going to explain securitization, but basically what it what everyone needs to know about securitization is going to cost less uh, to retire these coal power plants with this approach. Um, and it's a compromise because it, it also means that Duke Energy is going to uh, earn less off of the retirement of these power plants. But it's good for ratepayers, and, um, and so that's, that's how uh, the 50% provision got in there. It allows for independent power producers to blend and extend their existing PPA contracts with Duke for up to 10 years. So as you know, with the Senate Bill 3, the REPS, uh, shortly after that became law, uh, it was very successful in creating a homegrown industry in North Carolina. And so um, a lot of companies uh, built solar assets in particular and have been owning and operating them uh, very successfully and contributing to maintaining affordable electricity rates in North Carolina with that. Well, now um, their PPA terms are going to expire here in the next few years. And so this is a really responsible way to make sure that those assets don't go to waste because they have a lot of useful life left and um, to make sure that it continues to um, maintain and improve uh, affordable rates for everyone. It establishes uh, performance-based regulation. All right, so that is something that I know in prior episodes has been explained, so I won't re-explain it here. Uh, but this is an innovation uh, where we um, are creating more of an alignment uh, in incentives between consumers and the utility and industry to um, 
to deliver uh, on the needs of customers and do so affordably and maintain reliability. So what you can imagine is that the carbon plan happens. It will, it's required by law to align with the IRP. Uh, there's language in the law that says that. And then once the carbon plan spells out what least cost carbon plan is for Duke, uh, for Duke Energy, uh, then presumably they would file a performance, they'd file a rate case, and then this performance-based regulation section explains what that is. It includes multi-year rate plan. It uh, puts a limit on, on over-earning, and it um, includes performance incentive mechanisms. And so there are things that don't happen with electric service that really need to happen for the public interest and benefit, but there's not proper financial incentive uh, for that to happen through the investor-owned utility. Uh, so the performance incentive mechanisms give an opportunity, presumably, we'll see what the process turns out to be at, that the commission sets up for stakeholders to participate and inform what a performance incentive mechanism should be, and then we set targets and metrics uh, per the law. And the law suggests some ideas of what they could be, but doesn't limit those ideas. And then Duke would uh, try to perform to them, and if they do, they'd get to earn more. And that, that, that's really uh, the majority of provisions. There is, uh, um, in Section 5, uh, you would see under securitization uh, that there's also a mention to address net metering and a mention to address uh, customer programs uh, for renewable energy. So, so there's, there's a lot to that bill, and there's still a lot to happen as part of implementing the provisions within that bill. There's a lot of authority granted to the North Carolina Utilities Commission, which I know was you know, a big sticking point between the first iteration of this bill and then the, the second iteration that came out not too long before passing the House um, or before passing through the legislature. What I am curious about is kind of a, a different perspective. Ajula, I'd like to ask you, maybe from your perspective, what was not included in the bill that's on your radar and maybe what sort of opportunities are there to incorporate things that weren't included in the, the explicit language of the bill through some of the processes that are going to move through the Utilities Commission. And I'll just preface what I have to say by saying that, um, you know, North Carolina, as I said earlier, is a real leader in the country and in the region. And so the way that we um, design these programs, the way that we um, build out this statute is um, has a lot of implication in terms of demonstration value for um, our peers in other states. And so I think it's important that we try to get it right. And um, in general and overall, a commitment to decarbonization benefits all of us, without a doubt, without question. A 70% target is a great target, 100% is even better. Um, those are really good things. There, however, are questions about what the distributional benefits of those provisions actually are. And um, we should not lose sight of those distributional benefits as we advance towards decarbonization. Because this is a tremendous opportunity to build a strong and vibrant marketplace with many new entrants to market and with widely shared benefits. And that's a different way of doing electricity. 
And so um, we should take on that challenge alongside our efforts to decarbonize. Um, so what's not in the bill? Um, we're helping to mitigate impacts of climate, but we're not necessarily explicit about uh, expanding the metrics around who we're targeting and what we're measuring as it relates to working families, or rural communities, or persistently poor areas. There's no explicit conversation about how those folks, all of our folks, um, will be impacted as a result of our transition to decarbonize. And certainly all of those folks are consumers. We all are, 100% of North Carolinians are consumers of electricity, more than likely. And so um, when we're talking about how electricity is generated, there should be some explicit conversation about how those folks are participating. Um, I do, however, think that even though there is no explicit um, uh, focus on low income or persistently poor communities or um, explicit um, commitments to community solar or other sorts of mechanisms to expand opportunity, I think North Carolina is in many ways uniquely challenged by this question and also uniquely capable of addressing it. And in fact, um, while 951 lacks that explicit emphasis that many of us actually hope for, I'm nonetheless still hopeful for two reasons. First, this issue is top of mind for many of the advocates who were at the table and um, it's not gonna go away. And the second reason is that because the carbon plan itself has to be created through the North Carolina Utilities Commission, there is an opportunity to participate in a way that many people were not able to participate, um, many interests were not able to participate in the crafting of this legislation. So that creates opportunity for us. And then the final thing I'll say is that North Carolina's past is not its future. We're dealing with um, an entirely different market, a mature market. Some would say that it's a utility-scale saturated market. And so the metrics of being second in terms of installed capacity or hot, you know, top five in installed capacity, or even the metric around 70% carbon reduction are way too simplistic for thinking about how we deliver this new transition to communities. We should be thinking about metrics that talk about um, distributional aspects of that transition in addition to the decarbonization aspects of it. Ajulo makes really uh, excellent points. So when we think about the effects of the law, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. And one of the big transitions that we have an opportunity to make that, that kind of moving the policy making into the Utilities Commission could present an opportunity for dialogue is to um, stop allowing our thinking to end at the idea of, well, if rates are just low, everybody benefits and we're all good. Because we're not all good. There is a lot of economic development success in clean energy. There's a reason that this, this bill passed and that it had strong bipartisan support. Because in every single uh, legislative district and every single county in this state, there is a clean energy investment at work and there's people at work. But a lot of the conversation 
around uh, the distributional uh, value and impacts and effects has, um, has not been explored and, and understood and, and quantified and, um, and really the opportunity identified and realized. And, and so what does that mean? Well, there's, um, there's not a lot of solutions beyond something like bill pay assistance. Uh, which is not really a solution. It's just kind of a temporary Band-Aid. It's, uh, I'm sure, very critically helpful for folks who receive it. But it's not enabling or empowering uh, to folks in society who, right now, uh, they're just being, I think, not even spoken to because they're not in process right now, but they're being spoken of and about as, um, as just should be you're benefiting because things are cleaner and uh, rates aren't rates aren't going up because clean energy is responsible for keeping in a lot of ways for keeping rates down and we've shown that through our residential bill impact analyses of utilities commission decisions over the last 15 years and so forth so i think that i think um i think there's lots of opportunity here uh for what was not in the bill um, to get that on the table wholeheartedly agree and I think a lot of folks are probably ready and very knowledgeable, but not included uh, in process. And, and so we need to figure out how to do that. Both of you raise a number of, of really good points. And, you know, when you look back at the HB 951 stakeholder process, that's been probably one of the larger concerns that have been raised by a number of external stakeholders were, you know, the considerations of who was in the room negotiating the specifics of the bill. And I think something as, you know, a clean energy community to consider moving forward when we're looking at the process of implementing down at the Utilities Commission and the process of looking at, you know, what's next on the horizon with the next bills in the, the legislature um, in making sure that we're providing sort of a, an inclusive environment for you know, all different communities to, to have some sort of, uh, you know, participatory voice in the conversation. And especially, I think that's um, especially relevant when we're talking about a lot of the funding that's, that's on the horizon between infrastructure and if, if Build Back Better were to pass, right? Like making sure that we have a wide representation of stakeholders, uh, having a say in how that money is getting allocated and into what communities it's being allocated in throughout North Carolina. Um, so really great points that both of y'all uh, brought up. So Matt, uh, I mean, something that occurs to me is that one of the things that we know is it hasn't worked in Duke Energy's business model and the incentive structure and cost effectiveness tests at the Utilities Commission and so forth to bring forward programs, especially for low and moderate income customers uh, those who um, may not have uh, access to cash or credit to be able to um, invest or put money up to, in order to uh, be able to take advantage of a rebate program or a tax credit or something like that. Uh, Duke Energy has not also then brought effective programs to uh, meet customers where they are with their needs. And so one of the big questions and the theme that is in the law is innovation. And then we have performance incentive mechanisms and we have examples in those performance incentive mechanisms in the law. So there's, a, there's opportunities, and I know we're focusing a lot right now on an area that just 
people are frust very frustrated that did not get addressed. Um, but I think it's an opportunity for innovation um, in regulation, in process, in utility business model and utility programs, in finance and how finance and capital work with the utility and industry uh, to meet customers where they are. And we know that there's viable solutions out there. They're just a misfit right now for the financial incentive structure of the investor-owned utility. And they're a misfit right now for how we regulate electricity. And so I, I believe that this law gives the Utilities Commission the authority to address that. And uh, the carbon requirement is part of that authority. Performance-based regulation is part of that authority. The, the crystal clear innovation language and encouragement and innovation is part of that authority, the performance incentive mechanisms. Um, so now it's, now it's just seizing the opportunity to exercise that authority. And um, the uh, traditional participants are we need, we need more folks involved in process because the traditional participants are already there with a standard kind of uh, regular standing set of issues and interests um, where what we're talking about right now usually ends up lower on the list. Absolutely, Ivan. I think this, what a tremendous opportunity, right, to get the right players together to think about this issue and um, to develop an innovative solution to it. What a tremendous opportunity. Like, I am a huge fan of figuring out how we work within the confines of the financial incentives and the market that currently exists so that we can address the issues that low-income people in particular are facing around energy burden, um, around, you know, the lack of resiliency, um, issues related to um, poor housing stock that leads to inefficient um, use of power. So I am a huge fan of figuring out how we do that within the, the shareholder investor-owned utility model. Because if we can figure that out and make it work here, it can work everywhere. Yes. Where this type of market um, exists. And what a tremendous opportunity we have to figure that out. But it's, I, it has to, in part, start with a focus on the goal. A laser focus on the goal. If the goal is simply to decarbonize, that's not going to get us there, I fear. Unless there is an explicit um, mandate in the performance-based incentive, potentially, that says, how do you do this in such a way where you're reducing the energy burden of low-income people um, or increasing the opportunity for access of low-income people to energy efficiency um, um, upgrades or investments where they're not having to pay for everything up front or not having to increase their debt um, burden, then I think that's, that's the only way that actually get there is if the target if we have that target in mind when we're sitting down to have that conversation yeah, we have the mention of on bill financing um, in the law but that's um, that's only one of many solutions that are out there and available and it's and it's only a partial solution and um, I, I do kind of want to stand back we're sitting here at infocast you know southeast renewable energy summit and um, 
you know, I think our lunch conversation was really exciting, but it pointed out some things. Like, there's things that aren't on the agenda here, and there's things that are. And we have really big infrastructure questions, um, big capital expenditure questions, big rate impact questions around interconnection, around solar and storage, um, around uh, the, the Southeast Energy Exchange market that's really kind of for utilities is like a micro innovation on their business to, to bring down costs a little bit, but it's really not, it's not like aspirational that there's going to be all these renewable energy participants and all that stuff. I, I don't see it yet, and I don't know if we ever will. Um, but then simultaneously, we had this Southeast discussion, and if we could extend the themes that are here and kind of the gravitas of participants and, and whatnot um, to really get more kind of all-inclusive. I think it's a reflection of where a lot of people's heads are at throughout the Southeast that are in the halls of government right now, that are um, doing, that have definition in kind of the traditional ways of doing electricity that got us from 0% clean energy when it used to cost a lot more, like before solar was, one of, was you, you know, cheaper than natural gas. Um, and um, it got us to where we are now, where we could prove that clean energy works in the system, uh, that it can maintain or lower the whole cost of the system to everybody. So yeah, the, are the goalposts moving? Yeah, they're moving appropriately um, because it's no longer just about the technology. It's no longer just about the cost of the technology. It's also about the customers and society and the ec economy and the economic opportunity that we've proven is, is robust. And a lot of it's in front of us uh, for going the rest of the way to the, trans to the clean transformation of the, of the energy system and the economy. Absolutely. And um, the distributional impacts and equity considerations um, just can't be at the bottom of the list or an afterthought. Um, we have to figure out how to put that in the forefront of our conversation as we move towards a more sophisticated marketplace. The coolest thing about all of this is when we answer those questions effectively, we're really answering the affordability and rate impact question for every consumer in North Carolina. Uh, because every other consumer who's not in a um, kind of underserved situation or an excluded situation, uh, either individually or household or community, um, has more access to capital right now has more likelihood of being able to use a tax credit or something like that. Like there's solutions for some of the population out there. Um, and, but they would also benefit. So it kind of takes the narrative of like, oh, well, um, you, you know, the folks with, with kind of power and capital are benefiting everyone, so we're all good. It takes a narrative and flips it on its head and it says, well, if we make it work for everybody, then, then that benefit flows back the other way too. And it flows back not just in affordability, um, in having more robust economic development and opportunity everywhere for everyone, but also then in all the realization of all the benefits that makes our society and economy more resilient and people's communities and lives more resilient. So I look at this bill and I see the beginning and I wanna manage expectations here. We're not gonna solve everything by, the, by December 31st, 2022 on interconnection, on, um, on procurement of solar and storage, on, um, on uh, program solutions and, and uh, uh, for, for different customer groups and situations. We're not, we're not gonna solve it all, but what we can do 
is really innovate in the regulatory space and in the utility program, utility planning space, um, and make and set ourselves uh, on the right direction, on the right path, and accelerate us on that path by the end of 2022, and get get clear on those parameters and goals that are different. So stop looking in the rearview mirror as much and spend more time looking through the windshield. That's really what, in a bottom line, there was a lot of certainty that was in the House version of House Bill 951 that went away when the Senate worked out their negotiation and deal with Governor Cooper. And then we ended up with um, uncertainty in the near term for the markets, but more certainty about what can change, what where we're going, like just setting kind of the trajectory uh, for regulatory innovation. And, and so now we just need to take advantage of that and clarify and build out all the detail and get to that clarity and certainty on, on what this path looks like. And, and part of that, kind of as you alluded to, part of the, the uncertainty there is putting the authority back into the hands of the experts who are really in the weeds of how the energy and the utility markets work in North Carolina, right? And kicking off a process that will start, you know, in the coming months uh, and, and working with, you know, the utilities commissioners and all of the different entities and stakeholders that participate in proceedings down at the utilities commission to a degree to remove some of the, uh, the political sort of maneuvering from this, right? Uh, of you know determining generation resources based on you know political backgrounds or beliefs, and so hopefully in moving some of these these proceedings or processes over to the the utilities commission, um, it allows more room to to get us closer to some of those clean energy goals that we're hoping to achieve in the future. So I so I think um, I think to contextualize for the the listeners, one of the reasons that I think we're spending so much time today in our first time together, and because we're talking about the topic of nine fifty one. Spending so much time talking about, for example, low and moderate income consumers, um, talking about folks who haven't been kind of served by the system is, is because this really wasn't part of the conversation, right? There were, parties were not at the table um, that typically are um, directly working daily um, around those situations and so forth. And, and also, it's, I, I think it's important that we're shining a spotlight on that topic here um, today because it's just too easy and too regular to talk about things like land use and interconnection and, um, so on and so forth with like how much more solar and, and whatnot. This will hopefully balance out the dialogue some more. And, um, and there's going to be tools that would be tremendously valuable, uh, for regulators, for the consumer advocate, the public staff, if we had more like open source modeling where, where stakeholders could get, could get um, to see their, to translate the dialogue that needs to happen and the input that needs to come in. We also need data. We need, we need opportunities to be able to work together with data. North Carolina is notoriously non-transparent. Um, you know, you, you look at filings where, oh, that's the information we need to know to be able to come up with any ideas on how to fix the things that don't work about the system and it's redacted. It's like, it's like the, that has been the most consistent thing in my 17 years, almost 17 years of experience working for the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, is that the thing we need to know to solve the most challenging problems is redacted. So what does that mean, folks? If you don't, 
if you're not an attorney or you don't go to the Utilities Commission, it means you can read every word on the page except the data point, which is blacked out. And, and, and it's like, oh, how do, I, how do I get that? Oh, well, you can't. You have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Oh, so if, I, so if I know that information, I can't talk about it. Yes, that is correct. Okay, so how are we supposed to solve the problems? How are we supposed to innovate the solutions? How are we supposed to be able to share evidence-based information and ideate on that? And right now, uh, even, at, even at the Utilities Commission, we don't have like standard established use of, uh, of data, anal data receipt and data analytics tools and so on and so forth to uh, model out the complexities of this law, much less to be able to entertain um, you, you know, and facilitate an evidence-based conversation about how to, uh, to, uh, to solve for and address the needs of customers in the system that currently aren't addressed. Uh, and so I'm hoping like the infrastructure bill and other things like that can bring some money and resources and whatnot. Uh, if, if that's why, like if we're having trouble just paying for it, if uh, maybe it's training, if we can't see the value of doing that, uh, whatever's going on here, um, we, need to, we need to figure this out. So I was just thinking, Ivan, um, I've got a microphone, and it would be silly of me not to bring up the point, which actually addresses your question directly. Part of the reason why low income is not included in the legislation is because folks have created a mental image about what it looks like to be low income. And it has very clear racist overtones. It's, that is what part of the issue is. And um, so I think we need to be expansive in our language one, what we're talking about are people who are being left behind in this transition who could otherwise, were they wealthy enough, if they had, um, we're talking about working families, we're talking about small business owners, we're talking about nonprofit entities, we're talking about um, moderate income people who just are looking at their budget and don't see within their budget the ability to pay for a $40,000 solar array up front. Meanwhile, their wealthier neighbors are able to pay for that, and now all of a sudden they don't have an electric bill. That's just unfair. It just ain't right. And so I think it's, it's not, you know, when we start to talk about low income and use that phraseology, it allows the um, it allows unfortunately um, our decision makers to put that in a in a box in a black box um, and put it aside without any consequence. I think that is a phenomenal point, and I think we ha and I think we're allowing ourselves. There's a lot of consequences to this, um, where we end up pitted against each other. Um, so, uh, folks who, uh, so we know, and, and we've, uh, we filed at the North Carolina Utilities Commission that when people can and do put solar on their roof, it's of net benefit to other ratepayers. It's not a cross subsidy. Yet, uh, when the commission asked Duke to address not just the costs of solar going on rooftops, but the benefits, they opted not to. The commission came back and kind of slapped them on the wrist and said, no, address, address the benefits too. And they're like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. 
And, and so we since then figured out the solar rebate and whatnot, but solar rebate doesn't address what we're talking about here. And what we really need to do is, is shift that dialogue to, no, if it's like, it should work for everyone. And what we're really talking about here is meeting people where they are. And what we're being kind of lazy on is we're not innovating and not taking advantage of things that are starting to work and are working around the country and bringing them here to North Carolina and also doing more ourselves um, to offer up this and make the solution accessible and affordable in ways that, that work for folks like working families, small businesses, so on and so forth. Um, and, and so folks who don't have an afford affordable way uh, to, uh, to, be, to have clean energy in their business or their life or, the, or their, their household, um, it would be easy for them to um, be misrepresented or spoken of when they're not in the room, like they're being hurt or harmed uh, by people who can access it. Well, in a way they are because they're, people who are getting it are like, oh, I'm good, <laughs> I have no bill, yay, let's celebrate. And that's, that's great. There's a lot of positives about that. But then, the, but where's the attention to make sure that's, a, that's an opportunity for everyone? And, and I think there's a lot of fallacies out there that when it's an opportunity for everyone, it doesn't make everyone's electricity rates go through the roof. It, it probably does the opposite, but we don't know because we haven't been trying. Clearly, clearly what we talked about today is on our minds. And I think maybe it's on our minds because it's not on enough people's minds. And, but we have an opportunity with 951, probably with the infrastructure bill, as, as its many benefits and allocations roll into North Carolina to just take a moment, take a collective breath, and make sure it's a collective breath, like all of us, taking this breath together and say, ha we have an opportunity to innovate, to improve, to include, and, and to benefit, and to really strengthen uh, North Carolina for all of North Carolina. So how do we do that? And if we take that moment, uh, we're going to reap so many rewards. We're going to reap so many rewards. And North everyone's going to say, like, North Carolina, I think, you know, we kind of sometimes don't believe we can be a national leader in a space like this. But wow, we really can. And we have done ourselves a great service if we seize this opportunity um, uh, to do exactly what I was just describing. And people will look at North Carolina, it's just like they were surprised when we became number two in solar. They're like, how did North Carolina do that? And I'm like, well, it was very incremental and intentional. Um, and we prove to ourselves that when we put our mind to it and take responsible evidence-based steps together, we get there. And, um, and we can do it with pretty much every challenge we're facing right now if we want to. That's right. That's right. And just, uh, again, echoing the importance of transparency, we've got to have the data. And in order for us to be able to look at the data, we need to be capturing the metrics. What does it look like in terms of the distributional impacts across the state? We have to be um, explicit about those metrics. What are we actually measuring? And, and I, I, you know, I really dive into to some of the points that you were mentioning and, and usual. Like, I, I really like the idea of, you know, we're in this moment right now where we have the opportunity to be very intentional, to be very innovative and also make sure that we're collecting as much data as possible so that as we move towards those next steps of implementation, we're putting it all out there. And we're as tra transparent as possible 
in figuring out as a collective community what sort of regulations are going to benefit North Carolina in moving us closer to the carbon goals that were set out in 951, um, but also towards you know clean energy deployment across the state as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, really excited where this conversation has gone and uh, really excited that we've had the opportunity to feature both Azula, you and Ivan. Uh, this was a really, really fun conversation and I'm excited to continue to build upon this and talk about in future episodes what some of this innovation might look like and what's happening down at the, at the Utilities Commission as we're tracking that into 2022. Uh, so that's, that's a whole topic in and of itself, but as we also alluded to a little bit earlier, there are a whole host of topics that, that we can talk about that maybe don't get enough attention and things that we have not covered a lot of yet on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. So. Again, Ivan and Ajuo, I really thank you both for your time and for coming down to Charlotte and being a part of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast and being a part of this special live episode. Uh, and I'm excited to share this out with all of our Squeaky Clean community uh, over the next few weeks or so. Uh, so, Ajuo, thank you so much for being here on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. So glad to be here. Thank you, Matt. And Ivan, of course, thank you as well for being on this episode of the podcast. Well, thank you, Matt. My key takeaway from today's episode is the importance of inclusion and representation as we move into the implementation stage of HB 951. Low and moderate income communities are critically important to developing our clean energy future here in the state of North Carolina. And for far too long, they've been left out of the conversation. Now's the time for stakeholders to come to the table with innovative solutions designed to move us further in the direction of clean energy deployment while considering many of the communities whose voice is often unheard. The path has been paved though, as we've seen numerous creative solutions come to the table in other states and utility territories that consider communities of all different backgrounds and interests. Stay tuned as we'll continue to provide updates on HB 951 implementation throughout the course of 2022. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 59 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the Friends of the Pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.